the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go! Mental health is my wealth, the stress up on the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seeking ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. Hello, and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. So excited that you're back here. All right, so today's guest is Dr. James Jackson. We had a beautiful conversation about clearing the fog about long COVID. And that term has been tossed around quite a bit the past couple years. And if you want to know what the effects of long COVID are and what long COVID even means, this is a perfect podcast for you. I know Bobby and I have talked about it and mentioned it, but this is the scientific side of it and brain fog and how you can overcome it and the effects on our society. I think you'll really enjoy this. I appreciate Dr. James Jackson for having this conversation with me, one of the nicest people I've had on the pod. And aside from that, I want to announce here that we are starting to do live podcasts once a month. You have to be signed up for the Big Silence newsletter. So go over to thebigsilence.com. We are launching it on August 9th and it's an AMA. And guess who your guest is? Bobby. Huh? <laughs> he just goes, huh? He's like, I didn't know. You didn't know? About what? <laughs> So yeah, so with the live podcast, you get to join us in a room of very limited capacity live with us and we will take your questions and we will answer them and we're going to have some fun and we're launching it on a Wednesday. So we're going to grab your kombucha, grab your wine, grab whatever. It's a wine not Wednesday with Bobby and Karina for an AMA. All right. Link is in the podcast notes and i'll see you there enjoy the podcast as always share with anyone who you feel would appreciate it love you welcome to the podcast dr james jackson author of clearing the fog uh, surviving to thriving with long covid 
And I really want to dive into this. I've been reading your book and I have a lot of questions and I have community questions as well. But before we get into that, I would like to know about you. Thanks. I'd love to tell you about me. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Uh, You mentioned off air that you're from Indianapolis. I'm also a Midwesterner. I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, so a little north of of your hometown. Yeah. Um, Grew up in a a family of four. Great childhood, uh, played sports uh, in clubs, all, all of that. Uh, went on to college and then graduate school. Wanted to be a sportscaster before I wanted to be anything else. Uh, became a little intimidated by the production side of the business, so decided that that I would cross that off the list. And I gravitated toward what I was really good at. And what I was good at was listening to people caring about people. That's a good talent. Listening is a, a major talent. It is. It's a talent. And that led me uh, That led me down this winding path to psychology, led me to psychology. And um, I've been at Vanderbilt uh, in my current role uh, as a professor and director of behavioral health at the ICU Recovery Center for almost 25 years. So the biggest part of my life, I'm a, I'm a Southerner now, uh, although I still claim Michigan is home. And uh, really since the pandemic, my focus has been on caring for long COVID survivors. I've had my own mental health journey. Uh, That's been pretty recent and that's been hard, but it's also been a blessing because that has really informed a lot of my work with them. Yeah. Is it, what is your mental health journey if you care to share? Is it OCD? It's OCD. OCD. Yeah. Um, Sometimes small O, small C, small D, sometimes all caps, OCD, but yeah, OCD. So when were you diagnosed with that? I was diagnosed in 2018 with OCD. As I look back now, kind of over my shoulder, I can see that it was showing up. It was manifesting long before that. But uh, I had some stressful events in my life in 2018, 2017, 18. And it was really like somebody turned on a breaker switch. And that OCD that had been more like a nuisance, um, it became really profound. And and I went to see a psychologist, wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, and I said, you know, how do we get rid of this? She told me that I had OCD. I said, how do we get rid of it? And she said, I, you know, I'm not so sure that we get rid of it. Uh, I, and and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I thought, you know, let's burn this down. Let's root this out. And And her comment was, um, we can help improve it, but mostly part of what we're going to do is is we're going to help you figure out how to live a rich life with it. And um, and that wasn't really what I wanted to hear. You know, I really wanted it gone. I wanted her to give me a magic wand, you know, some magic pills. I just wanted it gone. And um, strangely, that that insight that I could live with it, that proved to be crucial when I started working with long COVID patients because their story is the same. They don't have OCD, but they have this problem, came on suddenly. They don't want it. They want to get rid of it. It's not going away. So that insight, um, we're going to try to treat it, but you can find a way to live with it. You can be okay. That's been a great insight in my work with them as it has been for me. Yeah, I think it's important to point out like a diagnosis is not an end all. You do, you can learn to live and thrive with anything. It's just learning what how to do that. And so you worked in ICU recovery unit or center during COVID. And number one, I want to point out that you had a tra- like a really tough time in 2018, and that's before COVID even hit. Right. <laughs> and so then you're in ICU. 
And that, for you, how was that? Yeah, so, so, so much of my work was with providers who were caring for patients in the ICU. I myself was not really in the ICU those days. I was seeing ICU survivors, but, but, but a big part of my day-to-day at Vanderbilt was helping care for doctors who were in the ICU, right, who were losing patients sometimes daily, you know, who were coming home and sleeping in the shed or the garage or the guest house because they were afraid of infecting their families who were having to, who were having to tell family members of patients, uh, you know, your husband's dying, but I'm sorry, we can't let you up to the unit to see him, right? Because that's the rule. So they were, um, they were traumatized by that is the best word. I mean, capital T, traumatized by that. Uh, they were, and the nurses were, and and the janitors and the respiratory therapists and everybody involved. It was incredibly traumatic. And um, getting to walk with them through that hard season was really a privilege of mine, but it was really hard. You know, taking that on uh, along with some other mental health professionals was really hard, trying to find outlets to release that um, because, uh, you know, as you know, we tend to carry that stress with us. That was important. But yeah, that was a hugely hard season, Karina, really hard season. Yeah, I have a couple um, really close friends that are ICU nurses and they have not recovered from the PTSD of it. Yeah, Um, probably will never fully recover from that. Yeah. So can you explain, I've heard the term long COVID being out probably like the past year and a half, two years especially. Can you explain exactly what long COVID is? Sure, I'm glad to. People people have different definitions, but the the gist is that that you have long COVID if you develop COVID, if the acute symptoms of COVID have gone away and new problems are persisting. So your fever's gone, um, uh, you know, you're feeling better in some respects, but now after the acute condition is gone, you've got cognitive problems you didn't have before. You've got profound fatigue you didn't have before. You've got mental health problems you didn't have before. You've got balance problems you didn't have before. When those problems have existed for, let's say, three months, two or three or four months, um, that's effectively called long COVID. Some people understand long COVID to mean that your acute symptoms are lasting for a long time, but that's not really it. It's the idea that you're diagnosed, you test positive, whatever, maybe you haven't even been that sick, but you've got all these residual challenges down the road and coming to grips with those, worrying about whether they're ever going to improve, grappling with what the implications are for your job, for your family roles, all of that. It's a really bitter pill for people to swallow. It's a hard challenge to live with and accept. So you'd say long COVID is the physical and the mental and the mental and the cognitive, all three. I, I I call that the unholy trinity of long COVID. It's the cognitive, often called brain fog, better called brain injury, I think, um, and mental health problems and physical as well. How would someone know if they have brain fog? It's, it's a great question uh, because that term, right, um, is pretty meaningless. Uh, I could ask you, you could ask somebody else, I could ask somebody else what it means. We'd all probably have different descriptions, different definitions. But it refers to this idea that I'm not thinking with the same clarity that I was before. I'm slower. I'm not attending. I'm not remembering. I'm not as clear. This didn't exist before. That's brain fog. And what? how do you think COVID affects that? 
So we think COVID is a cause of that. And um, there are really, there are two ways at least that it could be causing brain fog. One of them is that um, a lot of people with COVID and long COVID, they battle with neuroinflammatory processes. They deal with neuroinflammation that the COVID has caused. And that can lead, it's more complicated than that, but that can lead to actual brain changes that we see on MRIs um, in the brain scans of some patients who have COVID. When we do research on animals, rats, let's say, or mice, and you inject them with COVID, um, their brains change. So uh, we know the brains change, um, but also there are mental health challenges that people have with long COVID, and those can affect cognition too. So if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you have PTSD, that's also contributing to brain fog. I want to read something from your book, Clearing the Fog, and talk about this. On page 174, talking about isolation. So recent scientific research suggests that our brain considers social engagement a basic biological need in the same way that our bodies require water, food, and air to survive. It makes sense that when this need is not fulfilled, there can be detrimental effects to our health. Multiple studies show that social isolation is a key contributor to the development of many mental health conditions and concerns, including anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, and suicidal ideation. But it is not only mental health that suffers. Research has also been linked to negative impacts of physical health, leading to high blood pressure, obesity, greater risk of heart disease and stroke, sleep problems, and in one large examination of nearly 600,000 adults, a heightened risk of premature death, increasing in white people by up to 84% and doubling in black people. Indeed, in a research meta-analysis that gathered and analyzed the results of existing studies, researchers found that social isolation is as harmful to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and twice as damaging to physical health as morbid obesity. Can we talk about that? That's heavy. Oh, Isn't that shit. shocking? Shocking. Uh, it's, it's shocking. And, and I think what it points to is the idea that we are wired for community, right? We are built to be in community with other people. And I think one thing that has happened during the pandemic is that, you know, because we were physically disconnected, um, that community that people participated often in really eroded, right? For a lot of people, it really eroded. Uh, we're working from home often. There are kind of new and alternative models of connecting. And um, I think communities really suffered as a result. I don't think people have ever been as isolated. And and I think we don't appreciate, and you referenced it right there, right? We don't appreciate what a gigantic public health issue isolation is, right? Like we've done a pretty good job, I think, reminding people that uh, you shouldn't smoke cigarettes, right? That's not um, really a common practice in a lot of places anymore. But isolation, I don't think people think twice about that, and yet it is just as harmful. So I, I, I'm glad that you raised it. I think we need to bring attention to it. And I think to your listeners, if you're finding yourself isolated today, if that's been your new normal during the pandemic, might not be simple, but let's make a commitment to try to find some ways to change that because more community equals better health 
more isolation equals worse health. It's really that simple. Yeah, I think a lot of people, because of the isolation that we went through, are so used to isolation now and got complacent with it. And I know now, even for me, like I'm an introvert and, you know, the first two weeks it's like, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then I'm like, wait a second. And then start getting a little more sad, a little more sad. And then coming out of it, I actually now like make it an effort. I started doing a ton of events um, with the big silence and mental health and fitness and getting people together. And I have to make myself get out there. But Maybe you don't want to do it in the beginning, but then once you're there and then afterwards, it's this energy and you feel so good. And so what would you say to someone who is still stuck in that isolation? Yeah, I would say that that the first thing you need to recognize is it's really harmful for you, right? It's really harmful for you. So reach down deep and find a motivation to make that change because it is really harmful. I would say also... You know, you don't need to fix this overnight. It can be a slow process of change, but reach out to an old friend that you haven't talked to in a while. Connect with a neighbor, you know, pause a second in a conversation with somebody at the grocery store. Go to a meetup group, you know, do something. Take that first baby step, if you want to call it that, away from isolation. It could even be online. I think in person is better, but online, there's less of a barrier, I think, to access. But Take action. That's the message I I would give. Right. And you said before, with your OCD, you sometimes have isolated yourself. So you've experienced this outside of COVID. I have. Yeah, I have. And uh, I think almost every time I've done it, it has been really unhelpful for me. Right? It makes sense at the time. Um, For me, when I isolate a lot, it's really driven by shame. You know, it's driven by deep feelings of shame that, I'm not good enough. I shouldn't have a mental illness. Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell my story. Whatever the case might be, shame is often at the root of isolation. I I think if people are grappling with shame, even now, uh, people interested in mental health often do struggle, I think, with shame. If your listeners are grappling with shame, trying to find ways to lean into that, trying to find ways not to let that manage or dictate your life. It's really important because my experience with shame, Karina, is if you give it an inch, it's going to take a mile. You know, it's going to it's going to set up shop in your house and take over if you give in to shame. Yeah. So someone who's suffering from long COVID or shame or anything, what are the types of therapy that you suggest? We have a support group program at Vanderbilt, and um, obviously we don't have enough resources to treat 200 million people. Uh, that's oh. how many people we, we think have long COVID. Wow. But uh, we treat close to 100 people a week in our support group network, and um, it's really powerful. Seeing people come together and connect, uh, it's really powerful. So support groups are one thing I would encourage. Um, they're available on Facebook. They're available online. We have five of them at Vanderbilt. We're about to add another couple. Any engagement that will help people connect socially is something I recommend. I'm also in favor of people, if they're really struggling, reaching out to a psychologist or a therapist. That's not so simple necessarily in Nashville and I'm guessing in Austin too. 
there really aren't enough excellent psychologists to go around. Uh, many of them don't take insurance, so that's a barrier. But uh, being committed to pursuing mental health care, it really helps. Yeah. And speaking about insurance and mental health and therapy, uh, so one of the biggest initiatives at the Big Silence Foundation is we have our Therapy for All program, which you can apply for on our website. So anyone listening, donating to the Big Silence, it goes to help someone get therapy who can't afford it or they're in a mental health desert. And we have... 50 therapists um, that we work with. And uh, could I be one of those? Could yes. I be one of those? Okay, we're signing up. Rachel, you're listening. Let's do it. No, okay. Yeah, okay. Seriously, let's, okay. let's do it. Yes, yes. Rachel, our executive director, listens. Let's, we're, you're, we're signing you up. Yeah. Hey, that was easy. That was really easy. <laughs> I just, yay. I'm excited about that. And okay, so can we talk? About, well, actually, I want to go back to uh, work from home you mentioned earlier. How do you think that has affected? Because even for me, uh, I pre. COVID pre-2020, I had an office in Manhattan Beach, and now we don't have it anymore because during the past two, three years, we everyone is working from home, and now we've had new hires, and they're all over the U.S. So now it's just Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. So how do you think, what is the healthiest way mentally to manage work from home? I have really mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, my team does it. My team of 10 or 12 does it. And they do great. Like they're rocking it. But I miss that connection that we used to have. And I think that in some ways, work-life balance when you're working at home, I think can be harder rather than easier because you can't leave work at work, right? Your work is always there to do, right? So I think if you are working from home, one thing that is really important is setting crisp boundaries, figuring out how to set crisp boundaries, time boundaries, boundaries with family. Uh, that's really important. I think many people don't consider it. And I think if you are working from home and you don't have those connections with what sociologists call strong ties or even weak ties, making doubly sure that you connect with other people is just so important. So easy to just shut your garage door close the blinds, hunker down in your house, come out of your den, you know, after the winter, so to speak, like a like a grizzly bear. That is not what we want to encourage. Yeah, I know, because you can just be on your Zoom calls, but at the same time, you've got the kids, the pets, the this, the this, and then you have been home all day, and then you finish work, and you just stay home. Exactly. And yeah, because I, you know, company culture at Tone It Up, it was, you know... We got to socialize all day and laugh together. And I know a lot of companies are coming back in person, but for mine personally, we're not. So um, so I want to talk about depression and long COVID. Like why so much depression and loss, you know, obviously loss of work and financial stress and the isolation that we talked about, but even more suicidal ideation. We see so much depression, um, you know, conservatively, probably one in three people with long COVID have clinically significant depression, meaning enough depression to make a difference, you know, to negatively hinder them in some way. And I think there are two explanations for that. The one is biological. Something's happening to someone's brain after they've developed COVID in the, in the context of things like inflammation that may lead to depression. But I think even more so, it is that long COVID has, in some ways, robbed a lot of people of their 
occupation. It's robbed them of their income. It has caused them to disengage from their family. It has made them embrace an identity they didn't really want to embrace, right? In some cases, they've gone from a six-figure income to being on disability, right? All these concrete changes. And um, even as they've done that, they've had to back off from a lot of the hobbies they had, from relationships. They're just too fatigued. So if that happened to me, or if that happened to you, or almost anybody we could pick, you know, I could throw a ball across Vanderbilt's campus, I could hit somebody with it. Whoever we would pick, if you create those circumstances for them, they're going to be really depressed, right? It's a it's a normal response, I think, depression to an abnormal situation. And that's what we really see, a normal response to an abnormal situation. Yeah. So I have um, four, I wanted to bring up four community questions. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. Um, first one is from Bobby, aka also my husband. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, wait, I have a question. I was like, okay, what is it? <laughs> he said, is there any data that long COVID goes away or is it permanent? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of data that says that long COVID is not permanent, right? We see a lot of cases where people improve considerably. I was on a call just an hour ago with somebody today who's made really significant improvement. So, um, whether that means that your long COVID is 100% gone, whether it means it's 99% gone, 80% gone, I, I don't know about that. But we see cases where over time people get much, much better. And that's really encouraging. That's not everybody's story. But I think if people are feeling like they're struggling, if if they're grappling with their long COVID, I think it's important to highlight there's hope. There's hope for two reasons. One, Many people with long COVID do get better, too. Many people who don't get better find ways to accept and even embrace their difficulties and to find some beauty in it, as, as odd as that seems. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I typically have been like a very happy, like, go get them person, but I definitely have seen myself over the past few years kind of like, but now I'm like getting myself up and on. But I also lost my mother in 2021. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. a huge loss. I'm yeah. sorry. And it was, you know, for a lot of, you know, a lot of loved ones were lost. I was able to see her fully like suited up, masked and, you know, all of that. But um, yeah, it's it's been tough. But I know for me, like just forcing myself to the simple things of getting in nature. This morning, I was like, I don't want to work. Okay, I'm, I'm going to work out. I'm going to go do a yoga flow. Um, just, you know, staying hydrated. The simple things, it's like, oh, I, I'm feeling exhausted. My husband and I both are like, you know, we had COVID at least two or three times. Um, like, we're just always tired. Normally, we're so energized. So, um, yeah, working on that. Learning to listen to the rhythms of your body, learning to be kind to yourself learning when to push, learning when to pull back. I mean, those are really important skills. But nature, you mentioned that, gosh, it is so important, right? And it's a, it's very much a natural antidepressant for many people. Uh, it's not necessarily a substitute for Prozac or Zoloft or other things that people who are clinically depressed might need, but, but nature can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a question from Beth. Is long COVID outside the United States as prevalent? 
I think it is as prevalent, uh, probably just as prevalent, but um, I think you hear about it less in some cultures, um, partly because they don't have clinics. They don't necessarily have the resources to diagnose long COVID like we do over here. So um, we don't think there are really significant cultural differences with regard to long COVID. There might be, but in general, when you look at studies across countries, people all around the world have these similar sorts of symptoms. How they cope with them, how they deal with them, that probably varies a lot. But long COVID is common across the world. Speaking of other countries, say like somewhere in Europe, let's take Spain. Um, what is their? What are their resources like? Do you even know? I don't even know if you have that answer. I'm just curious because I know so much about the U.S. and mental health and what's available and not available. But I'm curious. Sure. So in, in a place like Spain, in a, in a developed European country, they often have mental health services that are probably superior to the ones we have here. There's a little less mental health stigma. There's a little more of a formal effort to engage mental health issues. So in developed countries in Europe, uh, many of them, not all of them, many of them have taken long COVID quite seriously. I think in developing countries, though, that often have large populations, there's no long COVID clinic. You know, there's no expert resource. And so those folks in developing countries in rural uh, parts of the world, I think they're having a particularly hard time because they're challenged, but there's no one to really help. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Here's the question from Ella. My doctor suggested using nicotine patches to combat long COVID. Thoughts on this? Have you heard of that before? I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. Well, Ella, we don't have an answer for you there. <laughs> it's not near the top of the treatments. I, you know, I'm joking. I, I don't mean to. I, I, I can't yeah. comment on it, but yeah. it's nothing that I've heard very much about. Let's Let's say that. Okay. Um, Anastasia says, does long COVID affect digestion and what about cortisol levels? I think yes and yes. You know, the, the, the brain is, is the main area that I work with, so I can't speak to digestion necessarily. I think it does uh, impact cortisol. Certainly, we do see biologically driven anxiety in a lot of our uh, long COVID patients. So I think it does impact cortisol. If if people have questions like this, uh, and these are great ones, uh, you know, you can do a couple things. You can engage them on a podcast or you can go to a long COVID clinic if you think you're grappling with long COVID. There are about 250 of them around the United States now. And um, the providers there can be really helpful. How do you find those 250 clinics? If you Google Somebody could email me if they wanted to. If I get like 14,000 emails, it'll take me a while to, to, to weed through them. But if you were to Google long COVID clinics in the United States, um, th there, there'll be a list. Okay. So I have a question. Long COVID and high blood pressure. Why? Uh, again, as a neuropsychologist and someone who works largely with the, with the brain as opposed to things like cardiology, I'm not exactly sure why it causes high blood pressure. Yeah, it's just, it was mentioned in the book. And I'm asking because I always have perfect <laughs> blood pressure. I always have perfect yeah. 120 yeah. over 80 or whatever. And it's and high now? It's high? Only since COVID. You're not alone in that. I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of cardiac concerns that have emerged in the context of long COVID. People are worried about episodes of uh, heart racing, high blood pressure, 
people are worried about low blood pressure. You know, it really ranges. That's one of the big challenges of long COVID, which is, Karina, there are so many symptoms, right? There are so many. Literally, some studies would say there are hundreds of symptoms that people have endorsed. Yeah. And then I was like, well, do I have more anxiety, which is also a long COVID thing? I it mean, is. I've, it is. I had anxiety in the past, but only like tiny little episodes here and there. Um, but I knew how to manage them naturally. You know, you know me, I'm just like, go meditate, go breathe. Um, but I noticed like, I, my heart races, like I sleep, um, my sleep is um, not as good. And like, I have a fast heart rate when I sleep, like I sleep very anxious. So, and it's, it's just a recent thing in the past couple of years. So, okay. What else do you want to share? What do people need to hear from you? Um, Advice on anything mental health? Sure. Yeah. I I think um, as I referenced, um, you know, big contribution in my life related to, to writing Clearing the Fog was this insight from my OCD treatment that that I could live with really hard things, right? And, and so I think an important message to long COVID survivors is just that, that there's a way to live with really hard things, right? That one way to get better is for your symptoms to go away. I think everybody wants that. I want that for our patients. But another way to get better is to find a way to lean into your fear to find a way to accept the fact that even if things don't go away, you can still be okay. And I think when people embrace that idea, when they really understand that, that's often when things start to change. That's when we really start to witness often what is called post-traumatic growth. I don't know if you read about that in the book or not, but um, Karina, we talk about post-traumatic stress a lot. And everybody knows, I think, what that is. Post-traumatic growth is the idea that you endure a trauma, you endure a really hard thing, and actually, as a result, some growth develops. You get more humble, you get more grateful, you get more resilient, you get more spiritual, you value relationships more. We see that a lot in the context of long COVID. People are developing post-traumatic growth. Yeah, um, I've always looked at you know, the, my past with growing up with a schizophrenic mom and, you know, you've read, I don't know if you've read my book, but if anyone listening has, you have, it's, it's the trauma. And instead of being that victim, be like, how can I thrive from this? And even I was talking to my friend Shane yesterday and, you know, he just quoted a simple quote that we all know, control the things that you can control. <laughs> simple. I'm like, okay, fine. But one, I have another question too. What do you see with our children? That's uh, our children, our future, our future leaders. How do you think COVID has affected them? I think the impact of COVID on children, especially on their mental health, has been so dramatic. Right since the pandemic, it's been uh, it's been so dramatic. We see it in the rise of eating disorders. We see it in the rise of performance problems at school. We see it in the rise of teenage anxiety and depression. That's for the adolescent childhood population at large. But the other group of kids that people don't talk about too much are the children of parents with long COVID, right? So these are children of parents with a disability long COVID. They're having to grow up way too fast. They're having to grapple often with debilitating anxiety, um, suicidality, perhaps. Their lives have been turned really upside down. And the, the worrisome thing about that is 
if I develop anxiety as an adult, I'm already fully formed, right? I already have been to college. I already have a job. I've been fully formed. But if I'm a young child and I develop anxiety, that anxiety shapes my formation, right? It shapes my trajectory. And so that's why we have to be so concerned about mental health issues in childhood, because what happens to you as a young adult and an older adult that's driven a lot by what happens to you as a child. So I worry about it all the time. It really keeps me up at night. So if a parent is listening and concerned for their child, any advice? I would say um, use two criteria with regard to mental health issues. If they're having mental health issues, are, are they persisting? That's A, have they been going on for a while? And B, their children's mental health issues, are they severe enough to interfere with their functioning? Are they affecting their performance in sports? Are they making them more isolated at school? Are they affecting their grades? Are those children more isolated like we talked about? And if those two things are true, their mental health symptoms are persisting and they're getting worse, don't pass go, right? Talk to your pediatrician, talk to a mental health provider, get them some help. On the one hand, when children develop anxiety, it's concerning because they can take that into adulthood. On the other hand, the good news is children are really malleable, right? Their, their brains are more plastic than ours are, right? They can respond often better than adults to treatment. So if you get that little one in to a mental health provider, a lot of times he or she is going to improve a lot more rapidly than we would as adults. So you should make it a priority. Yeah. But how do you convince a child and explain mental health to them? It's really a hard thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think um, depending on their age, it, I, I would say um, there doesn't need to necessarily be a lot of convincing. You know, the right answer might be, hey, son, hey, daughter, you know, I'm taking you to the doctor. I, I know you don't really want to go, right? Like this isn't your jam here, but be a parent, right? We're taking you anyway. This is what you need. And um, that mental health provider hopefully can help you figure out how to do the messaging. Um, one thing that I think is true is if parents are better able to talk about their own struggles and normalize their own struggles, that's a big win for kids with mental health issues in their home. So um, if I can talk in my house about my OCD, if I can talk about my anxiety, that's really healthy, right? If my wife and I can decide not to put up a perfect facade, that's really healthy because that gives our kids permission to be real and it normalizes the struggle. And I think that's really important, Karina. Yeah, you point out that that perfection and parents always want to, you know, be perfect around the kids, perfect parents, smile, don't fight, don't talk about this. Mom and dad, like they're on a pedestal. And then that could cause a kid to be like, I'm weird. I'm not normal. I'm just going to shut down. And I mean, and I even take that one in my head, it went to social media and, and how, the perfectionism and all of that. And then how everyone, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like we just need to be real and talk about everything. Like it's, it's okay. It's everything is real. Yeah. I, you know, when I was training to be a psychologist, like long ago, long ago, back in those days, the, the approach was, man, you're not supposed to talk about your own feelings with a patient at all. You're supposed to be like a blank slate, right? They're going to project things on you. You're not going to 
you're not going to show them who you are. And um, that always seemed a little weird to me. That seemed kind of not natural to me. But these days, um, when appropriate, I talk about my own challenges with a patient, not to make the session about me, right? But because in taking that mask off and showing that I'm human, I give them permission to do the same, right? And I think whether it's on social media, wherever it might be, if we're in leadership, that's the obligation we have to model that for other people. Yeah. I mean, all of the therapists and psychologists that I've worked with over the years, I love it when they're human. And sometimes I'll ask questions and I can tell like they don't want to answer, but then we'll get to know you. <laughs> but then, you know, eventually they realize like, no, I actually like you can be human with me too. <laughs> and it it makes us all just connect better and be like, okay, I'm this is a normal feeling. Okay, yeah, I've gone through this too. Really lovely. Yeah, it's lovely when that happens. Yeah. So did you write this in like, how quickly? Because I wrote months. Six months, because it took me five years to write my memoir. Yeah, it was a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when I when I had the idea to write it, um, it, it, it quickly became more than an idea, it became a passion, and then it became a calling. You know, the idea of, of, of trying to help people, including people that I would never see, that I'd never impact myself, it became a calling. And in some ways, it, it kind of wrote itself. So uh, it was a lot of work. But um, when I get emails, when I get calls, when people stop me and say, hey, I've read this book, it's making a difference in my life, some version of that, all the effort's really worth it. And it's really lovely. Um, I, I think when I wrote the book, there were a couple of goals. One was that this book, Clearing the Fog, would be very practical. And one was that Clearing the Fog would be very kind. I wanted it to be a very kind human book. And and recently on Amazon, as you know, people leave you reviews and, and all of that. And somebody said, um, reading Clearing the Fog is like getting a big hug. And uh, and and I hope it's more than that. But the fact that somebody experienced it that way was really tender and really beautiful to me. I hope that's how people experience it when they read it, like getting a big hug. Yeah, I feel like you just like helping people and making it. It fulfills you. It fills your cup. For me too. A lot of times people are like, why do you work so much with the foundation and this, that? And I'm like, because I love it. Because I have the opportunity. I came... I came out of such darkness and I see the other side and everyone deserves the best and great book. I can't wait to finish it. I'm going to have Bobby hubby read it too. And it's because we always were like, we literally over dinner, we're like, what is long COVID? <laughs> now we know what is the you new know. normal. <laughs> yeah. We got yeah. it. So yeah. thank you, Dr. James Jackson for writing this. Um, and where can we find you? You can find me uh, on Twitter um, at Jim Jackson, Dr. Jim Jackson. You can see that I'm not on Twitter as much as I might be, but Dr. Jim Jackson. And I've got a website, jamescjackson.com. So you can find me there. And if you really want to find me, send me an email at um, james.c.jackson at bumc.org. Again, uh, you've got a lot of listeners. If they all send me emails, uh, it'd be a little overwhelming. But um, I just mentioned that because I was on Fresh Air not long ago on NPR, and, and that was really lovely. And I got probably 100 emails from people, and I'm in the process of answering them even now. Um, people have a lot of question, questions. They have a lot of needs. And if people reach out to me, um, it's a priority that I'll 
connect back with them. So if your listeners have questions, if they want to join our Vanderbilt support group, whatever we can do, if they need to find a doctor wherever, uh, we're all about helping them. So I'd love to stay in touch with you folks. Yeah, definitely. We'll put all of that information in the show notes and a link to the support groups at Vanderbilt. Well, thank you very much. I have enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate you. It's great to be with you. I appreciate you too. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in.